Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, I think, close enough. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Well, today we get to resume our story. Last week we saw this private anointing, appointing of Saul through Samuel by God. And so we know going into this part of the story that God already knows, okay, Saul's the guy. So this process we see in this part of the text, it's, it's like a formality, like a public formality. As we go through this part of the text, we're going to look at it in three parts. First, we'll look at verses 17 through 19, and we'll see again what it means that people reject God. In verses 20 through 24, we will see the truth about God's chosen servant. Now he is being, being chosen publicly. And in verses 25 through 27, we will see what it means to honor God by honoring the servants that God chooses for, for himself. Now we have seen a couple things with Saul up to this point, right? We, we saw Saul... Go looking for his father's donkeys. We saw God providentially bring Saul to Samuel and point Saul out to Samuel, saying, Samuel, that's the guy that I'm going to anoint as king. We, we saw Samuel honor Saul in a way that Saul didn't understand. We saw Samuel anoint Saul. And we... And we witnessed, as, as we read through the story, Saul, go 
from Samuel on his way home and God confirmed his calling on Saul's life. And Saul was moved by the Holy Spirit, something only the Holy Spirit can do, changed him into another person according to the text. And he got caught up in the worship of God with these singing prophets that we saw last week. And when Saul got home to his uncle's house, he did not share what the Lord had done. And he did not share the plan that God had for him and his family. In our text today, we see some of the same tendencies in Saul's life. That he, he hides from God and he sort of runs from God's plan for his life and he doesn't really celebrate what God is, is doing. almost doesn't even recognize what God is doing. But God is setting Saul up to be the most powerful man in Israel. In verses 17 through 19, we're going to see, we're going to be reminded of what it means that the people of Israel rejected God. Thereafter, this is verse 17, thereafter Samuel called the people together to the Lord at at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And when Samuel says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he is about to speak the word of the Lord. This is the prophetic message of God through the prophet Samuel. And it is entirely truthful because God has already said here in in 1 Samuel that he will never let Samuel's words fail. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up, this is a reminder, I, God, brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. He's referring to the the past, the ancestors of this generation. God is the one who delivered the people by His power. Now this is going to be important as we work through the text. God identifies Himself as Israel's deliverer from the land of bondage, from the land of Egypt. But God does not stop there as He speaks through Samuel. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Earlier in 1 Samuel, in chapters 4 through 7, we witnessed God deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. So God isn't only or merely referring to previous generations, that generation so long ago that came out of Egypt and and got to inherit the promised land. He's not only referring to that generation, but He is referring to this present generation. Not only did I, the Lord God, deliver your ancestors, but I delivered you from the oppression of the people living in this land of Canaan with you. I delivered you from the Philistines. I did this. The Lord did this. So God is identifying Himself as the deliverer of Israel. And again, we remember this point. We need to remember this truth as we work through the text. God identifies Himself as the Deliverer. Verse 19, But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you. Who is the Deliverer of Israel? God. You have rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities. God goes further here, not just from the people oppressing them, but God is, God is the deliverer of His people from all of their calamities. Yet, here, 
we are reminded that Israel has rejected God as their king who delivers you from all of your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now we know from chapter 8 of 1 Samuel that it, it, it was not necessarily a sin that Israel requested a king like the other nations from God. When we go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, God predicted that this would happen. In fact, God instructed in His law that Israel should choose a king for itself like the other nations. And that is the specific wording of Deuteronomy chapter 17. And so that was not the specific sin that Israel was caught up in. Instead, the sin is that Israel rejected God as their king, primary, first and foremost, king, overall king, the king of kings. Israel rejected God as king and chose a king for themselves or wanted God to appoint a king for them according to their own Preferences, And we learned that as we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and as we look back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And so God is going to appoint this king. Of course, we know by now that this king is Saul. And Samuel has already predicted that Saul will be this ravenous wolf type of fellow. The same type of fellow that is predicted, foretold, prophesied about in Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob, who was named Israel, renamed Israel, was telling about what his sons would become. And when he told about what his sons would become, he wasn't merely referring to his sons, but we learn there in Genesis chapter 49 that he was referring to his son's descendants, the clans, the tribes that would come from his his sons. And so the people have said, No, but set a king over us because we have rejected God and because we desire to have someone rule over us according to our preferences, according to the things that we would want for ourselves. And when we looked at this part of the story, when the elders of Israel came before Samuel and said, Samuel, this thing with your sons isn't working. We need a king, according to Deuteronomy 17. We, we looked at how the Israelite elders were taking God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 17, and they were, they were twisting it just a little bit in order to meet their own preferences, pursue their own, their own agendas. We talked about the danger in doing this. And we talked about the, the fact that when we pursue like our own preferences, neglecting the preferences of God in favor of our preferences, the way that we want things to be, this is a, a major form of idolatry and rebellion against, against God. Isaiah, the prophet who will you know, prophesy sometime after, after this, before the Babylonian exile. In Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 7, we, we see how God feels when we do something like this with His Word. Or even if we, even if we don't corrupt His Word and, and we choose to just pursue our own preferences while neglecting the design and the, the preferences that God gives us in His own Word. When we ignore the will of God for the sake of, of self-gain, 
Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 7, reveal to us how God feels. We talk logistics all the time, and we talk theology all of, all of the time. This morning, let me describe to you the feelings of God when we do not honor what He, what he desires. Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. This is good news. When we do not ask for God, God reveals Himself anyway to to His chosen people. This is what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That even though we don't seek after God, God seeks after His people and reveals Himself to His people. This is good news. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. Not only does He seek those out who don't ask for Him, but again, He reveals Himself to those who do not seek Him, such that He is seen by them, according to His own will, according to His own good pleasure, according to His grace and mercy. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation referring to the nation of Israel, the broader nation, probably here at this point consisting of both Israel and Judah, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. My people are sinning against me. They are rebelling against me. This people that I have chosen for myself. Yet I, God, full of grace and full of... Isn't it amazing how the Old Testament illustrates God's loving grace and His mercy even more so than it does His wrath? This is kind of a cool thing to see. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellion. You constantly rebel against me. You constantly sin against me. You rebellious people, you sinners, the nation of Israel, the nation of of Judah, who walk in the way which is not good, not in the way of righteousness, not in the way of the Lord, but in a way that is not good, following their own thoughts. And another way this can be said is according to their own preferences. And so rather than living according to God's design, rather than living according to the the preferences, the desires that God shares with us in His Scripture and His Word, we get it in our minds, I would like for things to be this way. I would like this person to do things this way. I think things need to be this way. And we begin pursuing those things The prophet Isaiah reveals that to be a way which is not good, following our own thoughts, following our own desires, rather than God's holy and perfect desires. A people, referring again to Judah or Israel, possibly both here, a people who continually provoke me to my face. Have you ever had someone that just knows how to push your buttons? Maybe a brother or a sister or some other relative or a a best friend or a frenemy. 
a people who continually provoke me to my face. Get at what God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah. As a people who live according to their own thoughts, according to their own desires, according to their own preferences, are actually provoking God to His face. Insulting God in a very active way. And these are strong words coming from God through the prophet Isaiah. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. I know more than you. I am more spiritual than you. I am more pious than you. I do the right stuff. Don't judge me. Don't condemn me. People who say this, opposing God to His face. God says, these are smoke in my nostrils. You know, you've seen the cartoons... Looney Tunes, the bull gets angry and smoke flares up from his nostrils. This is, the, this is the picture that we receive in Isaiah. These are smoke in my nostrils. This makes God angry. A fire that burns all day. And yet we see in the first verse of Isaiah 65 that God chooses to have grace and mercy even though He feels like this. A fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay to their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. So even though God has great grace and great mercy, still He is just. Still He repays people for their rebellion and for their sin. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. So each person will be repaid according to, his, according to his deeds. Yet God shows great grace and great mercy. When we read through Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1-7, through 7, do we understand the way that God is describing His feelings? And God has taken, taken the time. He has invested in us so much that he, he cares to describe to us how He feels. And how when, when His people live according to a design that is not His, it is like provoking Him to His face. It is insulting to Him. His nostrils flare up with anger, yet He has great grace. And this is the way God describes Himself to be. And brothers and sisters, it would probably do us well to, to pay very close attention this morning. And to really, as we've been doing the past few weeks, right? Think about our own preferences in light of the Scriptures. Think about our preferences regarding the teaching of, of Scripture. 
Think about our preferences again regarding church music. Think about our preferences regarding the amount of comfort we feel at home or the position we would like to have at work or the financial security or social status we would like to, like to have. The popularity maybe that we would like to gain. The success that we would like to experience in school. When we think about all of these things, the relationships that we have with family members and with, and with friends, and Scripture tells us quite plainly, and this is what is going on with Israel, this is why Israel in 1 Samuel is sinning against God in a way that does not honor God, is that we live according to our own preferences rather than according to God's design. This message is difficult this morning. Not difficult to understand. Not difficult to interpret from the text. Difficult to accept. We'll continue in verse 19 here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Now therefore, because you have rejected God as your king, Israel... And because you have requested a king according to your own preferences and not according to God's design in Deuteronomy chapter 17, now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Today is the day of reckoning, Israel. Today is the day God will choose a king from among you who will be this ravenous wolf that Samuel has already described to to the people. Now the process here is very interesting. Most commentators seem to agree that Samuel is using a process that is referred to as the casting of lots. How many of you are curious as to what casting of lots actually means? Yes, uh, it is something similar to today what we witness in uh, casinos around the world, the rolling of dice, right? Only it, it wasn't meant to be a mode of gambling like, you know, we use dice today. Uh, it, it was meant to reveal the will of God. And, and this method, the casting of lots, helps to discern the will of God prior to the coming and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. That's why prior to Acts chapter 2, we see the casting of lots as the main way people try to discern the will of God. And after Acts chapter 2, it's just the Holy Spirit leads His people because there's this amazing indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what the casting of lots is. And so it's understood by most commentators that Samuel here is casting lots. Now, God, God has already chosen the king. Uh, Samuel has already discerned the will of God. In fact, God has been very clear about his will to appoint and anoint Saul as king over Israel. And so I find this, this process to be very interesting here. Why doesn't Samuel just go to the tribe of Benjamin in view of all the people of Israel, in view maybe as represented by the elders here, it would be pretty impressive to fit all of Israel in one town, right? So maybe represented by the elders, as we have seen previously in, in 1 Samuel. Why, why didn't Samuel just go to the elder of the tribe of Benjamin? 
and say this is the family and then go in that family and get Saul and say Israel this is your king look how great this man is I think this probably had to do more with public formality than with anything else of course God had already chosen the king for Israel and of course Samuel already knew God's decision Samuel could have done the right thing by going straight to Saul and saying, Saul, you are king over Israel, and anointing him and appointing him that day in public view of everyone. But this process takes, takes days, probably, weeks, if not months. We don't know how long this process takes, and it receives so little space in the text of Scripture. But this was a long, drawn-out process. Probably a formality. Probably Samuel doing the right thing in the right way rather than doing the right thing in the wrong way. Right? Or in the wrong manner. He's crossing his T's. He's dotting his I's here. He's making sure things are done in such a way that he is, that he is beyond reproach in his ministry before both God and people. And I think we can learn from this. And this is obviously God's plan, Samuel, in speaking the word of the Lord, and speaking God's prophetic message to the people, says this is the way we're doing this. Which means it's God's desire that things be done in this way, that these formalities be honored, that T's be crossed and I's be dotted. That things be done in such a way that Samuel's ministry is, is beyond reproach. How often do we feel like we know the right thing to do, the correct thing to do, but then in our haste, we do it in a way that's just a little more damaging. Maybe we don't even notice you know, that we do this until after the fact, and we look back on it and we're like, I could have handled that better. Have you ever thought that? I could have handled that better. I think we learn something very practical from Samuel's ministry here. God doesn't just give us the correct thing to do in His Word. He actually gives us the correct manner in which to do these things, the correct way to do these things, the correct path to take to get these things, these things done. And so as best we can, we, we not only try and discern the right thing to do, but we also do our best to discern the right way to do them, such that our ministries are beyond reproach, such that our decisions are, are beyond reproach. So from this text, we know that Israel has rejected God. And now is the time for Israel to get exactly what she asked for. And King Saul... Verses 20 through 24, we will see God's chosen servant. Now before we read through this together and, and, and dissect this part of the text, we, we have to know this, we need to get our minds around this. God did choose Saul, right? We talked about this when we talked about the providence of God, how it's the people's request. God is doing this according to the people's request, but God had predicted He would do this from you know long, long ago, at least 600 years before this is going on, before this is happening. 
And so it's still according to the people's request, but it's God's plan that Saul become king. It's, it's not the case that Saul is somehow just punishment for Israel. God has been planning this all along. In Romans chapter 8, we learn what? That God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So in the anointing and the appointing of Saul as king, God is working things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Verse 20. Thus... Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. Again, probably represented by the elders of each tribe, it would be really difficult to fit all of Israel into one place like this. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. And the Matrite family was taken And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken, which means selected. We're going to learn that he wasn't there to actually physically grab and take, right? And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Okay, this is not the first time that Saul is hidden from God at this point in the story, right? Um, He did not share with his uncle what God had done. Uh, He was coming up with excuses when he was talking to Samuel about God's will for his own life and for his position as, as king. This, this is becoming repetitive in Saul's life. They looked for him, and he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired for, further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? Did he make it? Did he make it from his home here to this place where you've gathered Israel, where you've gathered this family? And so the Lord said, Behold, of course he's speaking through Samuel, right? Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. All the luggage that you guys brought, he's, he's over there hiding. He, look, Saul knew what was coming. God already revealed to both Samuel and Saul that Saul was to be king. Samuel has already anointed Saul with oil. And here Saul is hiding. Now it is tempting for us to read this text and say, Saul must have just been terrified of the prospect of becoming... He must have been fearful, but the text does not say that. Right? Uh, I want to warn us against reading into the text. We don't know what Saul's motivation is for hiding here. What we do know is that he was hiding, so he did not want to be seen, and for some reason he did not want to be selected as king. He's hiding himself by the baggage. And this is hilarious, okay? Here in a couple verses... When we read, I hope to hear you laughing, because if I don't hear you laughing through the rest of this story, I'm afraid there may be, there may be no hope. <laughs> so, so please feel free to laugh as we continue through the story. Saul is hiding by the baggage. Verses 23 and 24. So they ran, took him from there, from the baggage, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people by his shoulders upward. So here is Mr. Tall, dark, strong, and handsome, the stuff of legend, right? And he's, he's hiding. Look, if this guy stands this tall, 
he's hiding, you'd think, first of all, the, the people would just be able to see him. But no, they have to ask God, where is this guy? And God answers, he's over there. And then they pull him out and he stands two heads higher than everybody else. Right? And he's handsome, and he's good-looking, and he's stronger. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That guy, yes, that guy who was just hiding. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. Of course, if I'm there, I'm thinking, Yeah, he was the only one hiding. But that's not what Samuel is getting at, right? This guy's taller than everyone else. This guy's... This guy's more handsome than all the other men in Israel. This guy has dark skin. This guy is strong. This guy is kingly material. The most qualified according to human standards. There is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Long live the king. This is just funny to me. But Samuel is quite serious. And I think, I don't think Saul's laughing. Now here he is being promoted as king and he was trying to hide from it. Have you ever tried to hide from God's will for your life? I have. And God wins. He exposes us and he brings us to where he wants us to be. You know, whether we want to be there or not, God has a design for each of our lives. And here, all of the people, Samuel has honored the formalities. He has gone tribe by tribe, family by family. And he has shown all of the people that Saul is the most qualified candidate. And all of the people agree, and they get excited, and they shout, and they say, Long live the king. Now, not only has Saul been chosen, anointed, appointed by God, but he has been affirmed by the nation. Verses 25 through 27. We're going to see what it's like to honor God by honoring His servants. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book, and placed it before the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what these ordinances in this book were. If I were to venture a guess, it would be what Samuel shared with the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when he told the people all that this king would do. The agreement that the people would have to make to have this king, King Saul, according to their own preferences, and all of the authority that this king would have to take, people as servants and animals as property and fields for his own harvest. And the right that he would have to tax the people to set Saul up to be this ravenous wolf prophesied about in Genesis chapter 49. And so Samuel tells the people again, these are the ordinances, 
These are the agreements we're making as a new monarchy, as a new kingdom. This is our constitution. And these are the rights that this king will have. And the people agree to this. And Samuel sets this book as like a contract before God. And so this is now a contract that the people of Israel are under. Explaining the rights that the king, that the king has. And Samuel sent all the people away. Each one to his house. Look, if you're not laughing at that, it's very anticlimactic, right? And the story is full of that kind of stuff. The life of Samuel is full of this kind of stuff. Samuel all the time is making bad decisions, decisions that you look at and, why? Why are you doing that? But this part of the story, like, everything is building up. The plot is building up. People are building up to this climax. You know, up, you know, when you're studying literature, you talk about the climax. It's up here, and then you spend the story building up to this climax, and you reach the climax, and there's the central event in the story, and then it kind of resolves, and all the conflicts resolve, and there's a resolution, and then the story comes to a close, and that's like a good story. Every good story is like that and follows that, that, that sort of plot, that sort of linear you know, feel. And here, all of the people get excited. We build up to the climax, and all the people are like, long live the king. And Samuel says, okay, go home. And everybody just goes home. Where's the climax? This is great. So all the people just go home. Saul also just went home. Like, dude, you're just appointed by God as king. Confirmed by the people as their king, long live the king, and you're just going to go home. And we see this as being, like, ridiculously funny. An anticlimactic event in the storyline. As 21st century Americans, we read it this way. This is not what's going on in the story. According to most commentators and historians... At this time, it was another formality that after the confirmation of a king, after a king has been appointed, that there would be a battle after this against an enemy of the state, a battle during which the king would lead an army and prove himself. So following, you know, Saul also goes home, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. And so these valiant men going with Saul to Saul's home seems to be evidence that there may be a battle brewing. Right? These valiant men, not because they love Saul, not because they believe in Saul, but because God had touched their hearts. Right? Because God had made them into valiant men went with Saul. They were getting ready for battle. Now the Hebrew word for valiant here means honorable. It's a word used to refer to David's mighty men. And so here we see that even Saul had his own mighty men. And we don't talk much about Saul's mighty men. We only talk about David's mighty men. But Saul here has a group of mighty men. And valiant means honorable, strong, 
dedicated, a manly man, a good fellow, someone who is made of good moral fabric, is grounded, has an air of gravitas. This is what valiant means here in this text of Scripture. And here we see that these men are not just honoring the king. They're honoring God's plan for Israel. And so even though Israel is being sinful, rebellious against God, as all this is taking place, there are still some valiant men within Israel. People with good moral fabric, honorable men, people who care about the glory of God and the praise of God in the way that God wants. And they know what's coming and they follow Saul to his house. Turns out we haven't quite reached the climax yet. This is just one of those dips in the storyline. Right? Verse 27, in contrast to this, these valiant men, but certain worthless men, said, how can this one deliver us? Look, this is the most qualified guy in all of Israel. Samuel took the time to point this out. Yeah, you're going to criticize the, the only, the only obvious option that is king over Israel? But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him, Saul, and did not bring him any present. Okay. It's probably, you know, tradition or something, the acceptable thing to do to, to take someone who has been anointed by God, the anointed of God, some sort of gift, some sort of token that they did not bring him any present, but he that is Saul kept silent, kept his peace. Now, worthless men here. We have seen this term used in 1 Samuel before. We saw this phrase used to describe the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, at the beginning of the book. The Hebrew word here where worthless men is in the English text is B'nai Baliel, which means sons of Baliel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, if we remember our study when we were at the beginning of 1st... Who remembers the beginning of 1st Samuel still? When we were at the beginning of 1st Samuel, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, and we saw that Paul takes this word, Baliel, transliterates it into the Greek, Baliar, and uses this term to refer to Satan himself. Jesus uses a term like this to refer to the sons of Satan, sons of snakes, as he refers to the Pharisees. And when Paul uses this term, he's referring to those who are blinded by Satan himself. With Hophni and Phinehas through 1 Samuel, we saw that the text was very clear. Atonement would never be made for them forever because they were sons of Baliel. Wicked men, wretched men. 
their heart was wicked and the wickedness of their heart comes out in their actions. Root produces fruit, right? And so these people that the text refers to as worthless men, they are not just despising the king that God has placed over Israel, are they? They are despising God Himself, slapping God in the face, provoking God to His face. According to the language of Isaiah chapter 65, And God's anger, according to Isaiah, is smoldering out of his nostrils toward men like this. Strong language, when we see this term used in 1 Samuel, sons of Baliel, sons of wickedness. But certain sons of Baliel, sons of Satan, said, how can this one deliver us? So you have the valiant men who are honoring the office of, that God has established or is establishing in Israel through the people of Israel. Ultimately, His his Son will assume this office, this throne, and He will do so perpetually. This throne belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of introducing the throne, the kingly throne into Israel, and so that Jesus Christ, when He comes, will assume this throne within His creation and hold it forever, and He will be king over His people forever within His creation. Are these worthless men, instead of being like the valiant men who said, yes, we are, we are following God, we are going to fight for the things of God, we want the things that God desires. Instead of this, they begin criticizing, they begin disagreeing. They begin letting their preferences get the best of them again. They ask this question according to their own thoughts rather than according to the plan of God. And they despised him, Saul, but not only Saul, also God. And did not bring him any present. They did not honor him. And by not honoring God's plan, who else did they not honor? God. But he and Saul... He kept silent. He kept his peace. And again, we see this pattern with Saul. Doesn't tell his uncle about what Samuel said regarding you know, his family's inheritance of all that is good within Israel. Doesn't tell his uncle, hides this from him, doesn't tell his uncle about getting caught up in the spirit with these singing prophets like we saw last week goes home and eh, keeps silent says nothing. Hides in the baggage when it's time for him to be selected as king. And here, keeps silent about these worthless men, these sons of Belial. Not saying anything about them. Look, Saul, you're king now and your kingdom's already about to be divided by these worthless men. But he is silent. And I sympathize with this a little bit. I sympathize with Saul actually a lot. And here, he seems, you know, he doesn't really like being in front of people. <laughs> Me either. 
Sorry, guys. Doesn't really like being in front of people. Doesn't want to be noticed. Doesn't want to stir things up. Doesn't want to step on people's toes. Probably, maybe we get a hint here that Saul, Saul might have been just a little bit introverted. And I definitely understand that. But he kept silent here. As we think about this text and its application for our lives, we reflect on these things. There's really only one application I can draw out of this, right? And it's just asking us, you know, are we like the three different types of people we see in the text in response to Saul being chosen as king? There are the the people who just go about their business, they just go home. A lukewarm person person who, who isn't overly supportive, but isn't overly critical either, this person. Then there are the valiant men, ready and willing to fight for the things of God, men made of good moral fabric from the inside out. Remember, all this begins in the heart. We've already seen that. Root produces fruit. The gospel is a gospel of grace. We are saved by grace. The salvation produces, you know, the fruit of faith produces good works, produces valiant action. And there are these wicked men, the sons of Belial, the ones who are only concerned with their own preferences and doing things according to their own ways. And so we ask, which, which one of these people are, are we like? Well, we've seen in First Samuel, right, how God hates it when people twist His Word in any direction, hide part of His Word, or add to His Word. We've seen God, God hates it when people, do, when people misquote God. The Israelites did that, and it was because of their preferences that they did that. And so God has a certain desire about how we ought to read His Word, preach His Word, teach His Word, and listen to His Word being presented. And God makes it clear through His Bible how He desires we do that, and why He desires we do that, for our, for our good, for salvation, and for sanctification. Scripture is profitable. The Word of God is profitable for us. We saw last week that God has His desires for church music for the way that His people conduct music ministry and God's desire that there be a a music leader who is capable of instructing people regarding church music and training people regarding church music and who spends time studying the Word of God to be sure that church music is theologically accurate and someone who pours his passion into, into the music of the church. We saw that God desires that this position be filled by a pastor. Of course, in Israel at this time, the singing prophets were Levites. But that, that translates, and we saw that in the New Testament. Yet, we argue about our preferences. I'm not talking about here particularly. But in most churches, church conflict revolves around what? Music. 
Why do we get so concerned with our preferences when God has clearly defined His in the Bible? We get caught up with our preferences about the way we live life. The way we minister to our families, the way we run our homes, the way we work. The way that our schedules get so full that we don't have time for the God who died for us. Ow. It's like sitting with Jesus. And Jesus is, you know, he looks like he did on the cross. This is what I did for you. And he's unrecognizable, and he has this crown of thorns on him, right? He's been beaten by the cat of nine tails, an experienced Roman guard who's scientific in the way that he does this. And we tell him, sorry, Jesus, I have to work. I don't have time for you. Look at what he endured for us. Sorry, Jesus, I don't like the music today, so I'm going to tune out. Look at what he did for us. He is the one worthy of our worship, not us. What do we do getting so caught up in our preferences? This is what Israel did here. This, according to Isaiah, is like provoking God to His face. That is what makes Him angry. Yet He acts with great grace and mercy. We're we're all still here. Now, please understand... I know that I'm speaking to a couple of people in this room. This is why this sermon is so hard to preach this morning. I know I'm talking to people who will see this later. Maybe people who are watching live. I know I am. Please understand, I used to be this way. Overly critical about everything. Coming out of high school and going into college, I thought I was the best Christian there was. Oh, now I know better. And I would sit under the teaching of other other guys who, who could preach, and because I, I had a little bit of, you know, that introverted charisma. You guys know that's attractive, right? Introverted charisma. Does that make sense? Introverted charisma? I had that introverted charisma, and I would... Katie was sitting next to me, and I'd be like, well, that guy's wrong about what that word means. She would look at me. <laughs> I think God gave me the wife He gave me because I needed to be straightened up. <laughs> you know? No, please understand, I used to be this way critical, cynical about everything, wanting my preferences. And it's so easy to still get caught up in that, even as Christians, especially if, if we think we know the correct way to do things and that everybody who does something a, a different way, just a little bit off, is, it's wrong. So I need to say something about it. And so we go, and we don't even go to that person. We go to, we go to someone else, right? And I'm, I'm saying this because this is me. This is what I did. I'm happy to report that I've grown out of this. But we go to somebody else. I can't believe that that person did that thing in that way. They can't do anything about that. Please. 
And I know that all of us have, have, have been impacted by stuff like this, right? This is the mentality we have that cause, causes people to think that church is a joke, that drives people out, that causes church splits, that causes division, and I have seen it over and over and over and over again. And this church has been impacted by that, right? During the transitionary phase, there was some of this going on. And please understand, I'm not pointing any fingers. I don't have the right to do that. And so as early as November, I was thinking about, you know, maybe a step we need to take as a church to just safeguard against this. This is called gossip, by the way. There's a simple word for it. It's just gossip. Right? No one is immune. We have all been gossipers. And we have all been probably the subject of gossip. And so we don't condemn anyone. We don't point any fingers. If you're convicted, you're convicted. That's a good thing. Repent and let's go on, right? I'm going to recommend this resource to you by Matthew Mitchell, Resisting Gossip. Particularly this book is about resisting gossip in the church. I've seen gossip do more damage in the church and more damage to people than maybe anything else. And yeah, I think I can say that confidently. Added to this, we are introducing a policy here at the church at Sunsides. And I sent this to our elders earlier this week and and they said, this looks good. I'll have to edit because I've already found a typo in, (laughs) in the form that I that I have made it. But let me just read this to you so that you know where I stand on church gossip. This is a form that we've created so that people have an avenue through which to file grievances if there are any real genuine grievances. If you have a grievance, complaint or otherwise, please fill out this form. Any grievance offered by way of gossip or not according to Christ's words in Matthew 18 will not even be considered. And I say that again, if any one of us, and this includes me, okay, if we go to someone and say, so-and-so is doing things this way, and it shouldn't be done that way, your criticism and your complaint will not be addressed. Okay? Nita, our, our church secretary, she already knows. Kathy already knows. Albert knows. Tom knows. If you go and do this sort of back-channel gossiping, what they're going to say is, first, please go to that person face-to-face. It's Matthew chapter 8. Please just go to that person face-to-face. And that guards all of us. That's a, it's called accountability. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, what are we here as a church to do? Admonish one another. Yes, encourage one, one another all the more as we see the day approaching, as we see the day drawing near. And so accountability is a must as a church body and as a church family. And since we're not just a program, and since our goal isn't to just fill our seats, we need to do this, right? There are people who don't step into church because they think, oh, that church is going to criticize me and condemn me. We need to know there's no place for this among the people of God. There's a line here where people can circle the nature of their grievance. There are two types of grievances. 
that we accept and that we will address here because it is important that elders and deacons and other church staff are accountable to the church. Two types of grievances. These are already described in our bylaws. These are things that are already agreed upon by the church here. One, if there is any doctrine contrary to Scripture, it needs to be addressed. Please bring it up. Two, if there is conduct not fitting for service, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, God spells that out for us. Any grievance outside of these categories will not be dealt with, will not be considered. Some examples include a style of music. We're going to stop addressing those. Style of music. A decor. Some of these aren't going to apply here, okay? Yet, I'm setting up for the future. Just because I'm reading it here doesn't mean someone came to me and was like, Pastor, I can't believe the carpet is the way that it is. No. Nobody has said that to me, okay? Somebody said it just now. Style of music. Decor. Colors of carpets or walls. Someone's personal appearance. Pastor, I don't like you dressing so nice. Nicely, nice, nicely. We will ask, (laughs) nice. We will ask, what is your grievance? And so you will actually have to write out your grievance on this form, your complaint or whatever it is. And then we are going to ask you to explain how this is contrary to Scripture. This has to be filled in before you can even turn this in. And when this is turned in, it will be turned into the elders. This form is required if you would like your grievance to be dealt with. This will help keep, and this is why, why we're doing this. It's not just a, re, you know, a reaction to something. That would be shallow, right? No, this is going to prepare us for church growth. This is going to help us to cultivate, continue to cultivate and maintain a culture of grace. This is going to be a safeguard, a protection for our people now and in the future. This form is required if you would like your grievance to be dealt with. This will help keep the church body from gossip, from being overly critical, from considering our own preferences instead of God's instruction, and will help safeguard members, including elders, deacons, and staff from the heartache of gossip, unhealthy criticism, and the like. Not only is gossip insulting to God because it means we're coming from a place of our own preferences and we're complaining or saying something, you know, intentionally negative about someone else, but man, it just hurts people. All legitimate grievances, legitimate is a key word, all legitimate grievances will be addressed by the elders collectively. I mean, it's not one person's going to look at this and go, okay, this is what we're doing, and run with it. No, during elders' meeting, we will look at this, we'll decide on a course of action, we will look through the text of Scripture, we will search the Scriptures, we will come to a conclusion, we will do the hard work. All legitimate grievances will be addressed by the elders collectively and church discipline will be practiced when necessary. And we have a way to do that according to our bylaws, right? If your grievance does not fit into one of the above categories, either doctrine contrary to Scripture or conduct not fitting for service, 
it will not be considered. If your grievance fits into one of the above categories but is unbiblical, the elders or one of the elders will explain in some way to you privately why this criticism, why this grievance is not biblical. And so our church members are held accountable just as our elders and deacons and staff are held accountable according to the text of Scripture, according to God's preferences, not ours. If you have a personal problem with someone, this is not a grievance. We'll include guidelines for dealing with personal problems. One, Personal problems are not to be filed on this form. Don't come to the elders and tell them about a personal problem you're having with someone else. Go to the offender face-to-face and resist gossip. That's number two. Number three, practice forgiveness first. And number four, remember that the Christian life is not about your being pleased. And number five, if a problem persists... Talk to an elder about the problem you are having with another person. And so having a policy like this in place, not only does it honor the text of Scripture, in fact, it's, it's the proper application of today's text. But having a policy like this in place safeguards elders, safeguards deacons, safeguards church staff, It safeguards the congregation of the whole, every member, keeping us all accountable. There is an appropriate way to file a grievance. There are appropriate grievances to have. There are inappropriate grievances to have. And there are inappropriate ways to tell others about the problems you're having. And Scripture gives us all of this, right? And all we want to do is just honor Scripture. So as we move, we move forward as a church. Of course, I've been thinking about this since November, and, and it was time to announce it because the text just lined up. And so I was like, okay, with this text, it's, it's time to do that, time to, to mention that. But as we move forward, seeking to have just this holistic ministry honoring God in every avenue. We're at a good starting point because we have such a high standard for the preaching and teaching of Scripture here. And that's the best starting point. But we want a biblical standard for church music. We want a biblical standard for the way we conduct our services. And we want a, we want a biblical standard for the way that we hold one another accountable. And so we're moving forward toward all of those, of those things. And this will help us to love one another more. And this will help us to get over ourselves. Only good comes from moving forward in this way because now we're dealing with real spiritual stuff even though it's difficult, right? So we move forward in this way. Understanding that salvation is not a works-based system. Acceptance here at the church at Sunsides is not a works-based system. If you go and gossip, you will still be accepted here. If you mess up, you will still be accepted here. But we want to do everything we can to build one another up toward Christ, to increase love, to spur one another on to good works that come out of this valiant heart that God provides to His people. And so we ask this question this morning. Are we 
the lukewarm sort of person that just goes home? Are we like these mighty men, valiant from the inside out? Or are we, you know, content being the wicked person, following only our own desires? My hope is that we follow hard after Jesus.